Welcome to the Faithful Forebears, a podcast about faithful Christian men and women throughout history. Episode 2.4, Dawit II and Claudius. Death is preferable with dignity and honor than life and dishonor. One who has made his honorable soul die, he has made her live. And the one who has saved his dishonored soul to live, he has made her die. Emperor Claudius of Ethiopia. First off, a quick thank you to everyone who participated in the t-shirt fundraiser. Thanks to your purchases and generous donations, and an especially generous donation from one particular anonymous donor, I'm working right now with the artist Theophilia on that Frumentius and Izana artwork. So keep a lookout on the website and the Facebook page to see its progress. Also, if you've been paying attention, sorry for the t-shirt error and delay. Some of the t-shirt graphics were a little bit off-center and a little bit different than advertised, but Custom Inc., who I did this podcast fundraiser through, stands by their product, and so they will be printing others. So, for those of you who got yours shipped to you, you will be receiving a second t-shirt before too long. And those of you who are going to pick it up for me personally, you will be getting two t-shirts on that day. Also, I'd like to give a special thank you to my friend, Dr. Abraham Adhanam, who graciously has helped me with some of the pronunciations for this episode. Just to be forewarned, those pronunciations will not now be perfect, but they will at least be better. So today's episode is another episode that I was not originally intending to do. That is, I started off researching and focusing on one person, a woman named Waleta Petros, but I got distracted by these two. With this series a little bit more than former episodes, I've been trying to connect our stories together so we can get one bigger picture of Ethiopian history. But when I tried to connect Waleta Petros's story with Zara Yacob's and Stephanos from last episode, there were just too many fascinating things to cover. So we will get to Waleta Petros next episode. But today, we're going to learn about two kings, or emperors, who helped save Ethiopia in its darkest hour. The father and son duo, Dawit II, and his son, Galawedos, or anglicized, Claudius. So let's start with a little review. We left off with Zara Jacob and Stephanos in the middle of the 1400s. Under Zara Jacob, the Ethiopian church and nation had a grand revival. Zara Jacob supported a renaissance in Ethiopian literature, which he personally contributed to as well. And he had several successful military campaigns, and it helped reform and unite the church. While his reign included some heavy-handed despotism, even against faithful Christians like Stephanos, he had helped give the church and the nation a strong identity and heritage and even a great literary corpus. But things were about to get much harder for both the nation and the church of Ethiopia. The first great challenge was also often a blessing, and this was the arrival of a new player in the region. And this new arrival would be somewhat of a frenemy, for the next 200 years, and that would be the nation of Portugal. Maybe you remember from history class in high school, or maybe more likely you don't, 
Vasco da Gama was a Portuguese explorer who in 1488 traveled around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. He and other sailors started a Portuguese trade empire, which would someday stretch all the way to Japan. And this trade empire included many points along the East African coast. And the Portuguese set up bases in the Persian Gulf in what is now Kenya. But they realized they would need some sort of local support if they were to maintain this trade network, especially against the Muslim forces in the region. So they began to reach out to the only major Christian power there, the Ethiopian Empire. This was a boon for the Ethiopians, because they were having their own problems with their neighbors. After Zara Yaqub, his son Ba'ada Maryam reigned. And as an interesting side note, Ba'ada Maryam proved to be a good ruler as well. And one of his best moves was that after the death of his own mother, he basically adopted another one of his father's wives as his own mother. Her name was Queen Eleni, and he officially made her the Queen Mother. And the two effectively ruled basically as a team. During these reigns, the ties between Ethiopia and Europe grew stronger. But the Islamic neighbors of Ethiopia were also growing stronger. Ethiopia was, and mostly still is, surrounded by Islamic nations. To the east lay the Sultanate of Adal, which included much of modern-day Somalia. Across the Red Sea lay Yemen and Arabia, and to the northeast lay Egypt. When these were all separate nations and separate kingdoms, Ethiopia could hold its own against any one of them. But if they were strongly united or allied, that would be a serious problem. And it started to become a serious problem in the early 1500s. Fortunately for the Ethiopian nation, they could see the issues growing, so they were not totally unprepared. This is where we will meet our first forebear for today. In 1508, a young king named Dawit II, also known as Libna Dingel, was crowned emperor of Ethiopia after his father had been killed in a battle. Amazingly, Queen Elani, the queen mother from before, was still alive. She again stepped into the role as co-ruler and reigned until Dawit could be old enough to rule on his own. She also probably deserves her own episode herself, because for over 50 years she helped her husband, then stepson, then step-grandson, and then step-great-grandson rule. And she is remembered in her country for her wisdom and commitment to her faith. She was also very politically perceptive, and she could see the balance of power shifting in the region. While things were still relatively peaceful with the neighboring Muslim nations, she knew it would not last. So she began seriously courting the Portuguese to find some sort of mutually beneficial arrangement, and possibly a military alliance. The groundwork was laid that helped Ethiopia survive the upcoming storm. Emperor Dawit II was brought up well likely under a lot of the influence of Queen Elani. In 1513, when he was 17, he married his wife, Zebla Wengel. The match proved to be a great one. Not only would Zebla Wengel prove to be brave in her own right, but the two seemed to be genuinely in love. And in stark contrast to many of his forefathers, including his great-grandfather, Zara Yekub, Dawit II only had one wife, 
it is pointed to as evidence of his devotion and piety. The two would end up having a total of 12 children together. In 1516 and 17, just as Dawit II was reaching his legal age to rule, two troubling events occurred. The first was to the east. The kingdom around modern-day Somalia that I mentioned earlier was growing powerful. It was known as the Sultanate of Adal. In 1517, they attacked Ethiopia from the east and made serious headway into the country. They also conquered some of the far side of the Red Sea in Yemen. The second problem was that the Ottoman Empire conquered Egypt, uniting much of the Middle East under one powerful Turkish empire. But thanks to Elani, Ethiopia was prepared for war. The force from Adal had evaded deep into Ethiopia, but Emperor Dawit, who was still just a teenager, personally led his army in a brilliant battle, which ambushed, trapped, and annihilated the invading Adal army, killing the enemy general. At the same time, an allied fleet from Portugal raided and sacked the Adal Sultanate capital. Ethiopia had a decisive victory, and they breathed a sigh of relief. It seemed that they had just defeated their greatest enemy, and while some damage had been done, they'd survived. Now they just had to figure out how to rebuild, and they believed they could be at peace. But sadly, they were very mistaken. After the victory, the Portuguese and the Ethiopians tried to figure out how to divide the spoils of war. Who would occupy what territory there, or who would get this strong point here? This did not go as smoothly as hoped. Much of the Portuguese reinforcements had come too late, after the decisive battle. This made Dawit reluctant to give the Portuguese much, in terms of territory or influence. For six years, the two nations bickered and came to no agreement. Finally, the Portuguese left, with no commitment from either for military support again. But since their greatest enemy had been defeated, it did not seem too big an issue to the Ethiopians. But during those six years of bickering, the Sultanate of Adal was weak, but not gone. Not long after the Portuguese left, it began to rebuild. In that time, a new ruler had slowly begun building his power and influence. Imam Ahmad ibn Ibrahim al-Ghazi was his name, though he's often called Gragan, a.k.a. the left-handed. So, since that's a bit shorter, I'm just going to call him that. But he would prove to be one of the greatest threats to Ethiopia in all its history, and he would bring Ethiopia to its darkest hour, on the brink of destruction. Gragan immediately began attacking Ethiopia again and he proved to be a deadly leader. Emperor Dawit marched out to meet him in battle, just as he'd done 12 years before. They met at the Battle of Shimbrakuri, or the Battle of Chickpea Swamp. Dawit, who is now in his late 20s, was not able to pull off the same miracle victory as before. Instead, both armies battered away at each other, with heavy casualties. While Gragan's army was technically victorious, his army was such a wreck that he left Ethiopia. For two years, there was a bit of a respite. But in 1531, Gragan returned, deadlier and more destructive than ever. Dawit tried to stop Gragan, but kept getting pushed back again and again and again. He was forced to surrender some of his territory so that he could hold up in a strong point and try to stop Gragan there. But Gragan was ready for this too. 
This campaign, Grogan had not only his own army, but had brought with him Turkish reinforcements and firepower. He brought with him the first cannons ever to be fired in this region of Africa. With these powerful weapons and allies, Grogan broke down the fortifications, and Dawit himself narrowly escaped. But his army was now in ruins and defeated, and almost all of Ethiopia lay open to Grogan's ravaging forces. The destruction that occurred over the next ten years were an absolute tragedy for Ethiopian Christianity and world Christianity. As one scholar writes, the Muslim occupation of the Christian highlands under Ahmed Grogan lasted for little more than ten years, between 1531 and 1543, but the amount of destruction brought about in these years can only be estimated in terms of centuries. Another commentator describes it this way. The Holocaust enveloped most parts of Ethiopia and brought in its train misery, murder, ruin, and devastation. Much of the literary and intellectual heritage of Ethiopia was irretrievably lost, and the barbarism and the brutality had had an effect far transcending that of its age. To the Ethiopians, a good deal of their hard-won civilization was destroyed, while to history and to the Ethiopian scholar, precious documentation and irreplaceable evidence perished forever. Countless Ethiopian manuscripts of poetry, history, theology were lost. Much of the great literary renaissance that Zari Yaqub had cultivated was burned or destroyed. Almost three-quarters of the nation lay under Grogan's control as he actively tried to erase all of its Christian identity. For the next three years, Grogan could not be defeated. He won battle after battle, and even reached and sacked the ancient capital of Aksum. Finally, in the Tigray region, on the other side of the nation from where he started, Grogan was halted. But he was only halted, not defeated. Emperor Dawit realized he needed to ask his old allies for help once again. Grogan was being supplied and helped by Turkish forces. Dawit needed firepower to match it. He needed the support of the Portuguese again. Thankfully in Dawit's court, a Portuguese physician had stayed behind when the others had left before. His name was João Bermudez. He had been slowly convincing Dawit and the Abuna, remember that's the special name for the chief bishop of Ethiopia, the merits of Roman Catholicism. In 1538, when the Abuna was very old, he handed over his title of Abuna to Bermudas, something he didn't really have the right to do. And in fact, it was so illegitimate, the current pope wouldn't even recognize it as true. But for the Portuguese, it was enough to revive the old alliance. And so they sent a small force to Ethiopia of 400 men and artillery. It was led by Cristovao de Gama, son of Vasco da Gama himself. But remember, it took a long time to get from Portugal to Ethiopia, especially since they had to sail all the way around Africa to get there. So sadly, Dawit died before he ever was able to see the reinforcements arrive. He died in a remote monastery on September 2nd, 1540. He died likely entirely unsure of the fate of his nation. At that moment, most of Ethiopia lay under enemy control, 
He'd already lost one of his sons to war, and another one had been captured. Likely his final prayer was that God would watch over his nation and his family. He had fought bravely, tried to protect his people, and tried to live out his faith. The crown then passed to his next oldest son, our second forebearer for this episode, Galaudios, or Claudius. And since I have less chance of mispronouncing Claudius, I will go with that name. Claudius was young when he took up this role, but he was fierce, and he would show his bravery and resilience right away. He would carry on the fight of his father and his nation. The Portuguese arrived in 1541, and with the support of their firearms and artillery, the Ethiopians, now being led by Claudius, started pushing Grogan's forces back. They scored two important victories, and there was hope that maybe, just maybe, they could still defeat Grogan and free Ethiopia once again. But Grogan proved he was still a power to be reckoned with, and he would not be pushed over so easily. He gathered all of his elite Turkish troopers with their firearms and their cannons, and in a night raid he attacked the Portuguese camp. Many of the Portuguese soldiers ran away in disarray, leaving behind most of their guns, and many were killed and captured. Among the captured was Cristóvão de Gama himself. He was brought to Grongen, who, after torturing him, immediately had him executed. Now it truly looked like the end of the Christian nation of Ethiopia. The Portuguese allies had been defeated. The Ethiopian army seemed like it was no longer a threat, to the forces of Grogan. Grogan, secured in his victory, decided to set up a camp near Lake Tana, a large and very important lake in Ethiopia. Lake Tana's islands had once held some of the most beautiful and ancient monasteries in all in Ethiopia, but these too had been sacked and looted by Grogan's forces. Grogan planned on waiting out the rainy season there, enjoying its beauty and spoils of war, until he would take the rest of Ethiopia at his leisure. And he was so certain of final victory, he let many of the Turkish reinforcements return home. He had already won. Why would he need them anymore? But Claudius had not given up hope. He rallied his fellow Ethiopians and soon had a small army once again. And then he made it his priority to find the scattered Portuguese soldiers. It turned out not as many of them had been killed as was first supposed. In fact, some had rallied to Claudius's mother. Remember her? Seblawengal? Well, she was not a queen who would just sit aside and let wars be fought. She was on the front lines as well, and many of the Portuguese had rallied to her. In total, over half of them had survived the raid unharmed, and they began to beg Claudius that they could return to the fight to avenge their leader. And that wasn't all the good fortune. Claudius discovered that not as many of the guns had been taken as thought either. Many of those had been hidden away in an armory earlier, and they were now brought to the growing army. Claudius waited as long as he could for as many Portuguese and Ethiopians to join him before he made his next move. Claudius set up a camp near Grogan, but did not attack just yet. He hoped that he could link up with another 50 more Portuguese gunmen that were somewhere in the region. But Grogan soon discovered the camp, and Claudius knew he could wait no longer. So Claudius attacked on February 21, 1543. 
the battle became known as the Battle of Wenedega. The battle truly was desperate. Grogan outnumbered the allied Portuguese and Ethiopians almost two to one. And if the allies lost this battle, there would be no one left to defend Ethiopia. At the beginning of the battle, Grogan's foot soldiers attacked and made headway. But then the Portuguese and Ethiopian horsemen drove them back, and the allies began to have success once again. Then Grog himself got on his horse and led his own personal cavalry on a devastating countercharge. But in the midst of that charge, one Portuguese gunman recognized Grogan. Calling to all his comrades, they all turned their guns on one place, Grogan, hoping to avenge the death of their fallen leader. One of these soldiers, in an act of great bravery, charged into Grogan's forces alone to get a shot at point-blank range. He was killed in the effort, but either his bullet or one of his comrades was true. It struck Grogan straight in the chest. His bodyguard whisked him away, but the rest of the Adal army began to flee. Grogan died later that same day. Legend has it under a tree in which he was so upset at his defeat that the last act he did was to swing his blade into the tree trunk. His army then collapsed, retreated, and would never be a threat to Ethiopia again. Through that victory, Ethiopia, as an independent Christian nation, battered and bruised as it was, was saved. Now, Dawit II and Claudius are a little different from my usual choice of forebears in this podcast. I'm always a little wary to include warriors. Part of the problem of the Middle Ages, and sometimes still today, is the glorification of violence and nationalism in the church. And the mixing of religion and violence and nationalism is always fraught with the possibility of danger. But as I mentioned before with Zara Yaqub, it comes down to a question of vocation. And the vocation of good government is to protect their citizens. From Romans 13, Paul says, it's a God-given duty that the government bears the sword. And from the research I've done, I believe both Dawit and Claudius were truly acting out their vocation. They were trying to protect the people under their rule and protection from annihilation and slavery. They were trying to protect their people, their church, and their faith. Because of this, I believe they truly are faithful forebears. But we are not quite done with Emperor Claudius just yet. We'll have a little bit more with him, and this will set the stage for our next episode. So Ethiopia had now survived one of its greatest existential threats, and it breathed a sigh of relief, but its troubles were not over. Now that it had survived against its greatest enemy, it would now have to survive its struggle against its friends. Remember, in the dark times before his death, Dawit II had made some concessions to the Portuguese, and remember that one Portuguese doctor, João Bermudez, had been named Abuna, as illegitimate as that was. Bermudez had been crucial in getting the reinforcements that helped Claudius win the battle. But now Bermudez pressured the new king and his nation to convert to Roman Catholic Christianity. This put Claudius in a difficult spot. He wanted to keep Ethiopia independent, with its own heritage and traditions, but he had just seen firsthand 
the need of the military aid Portugal could give, and the debt that he was in. He wanted to keep Portugal as an ally, but he did not want to give up his nation's Ethiopian identity. Claudius worked hard to stay in that tension. In part of the compromise, he was willing to acknowledge the Pope's universal authority, but was not willing to fully submit to it. He allowed in some Jesuit missionaries, but only in a very limited way. He would also write letters to the Pope defending Ethiopian traditions from a theological standpoint. One of the great conflicts with the Roman Catholics was the many traditions that were from a Jewish origin. Remember, Ethiopia had always felt a special relationship to Israel, things like keeping the Sabbath and even circumcision. Claudius defended his nation's traditions, saying these were done not because they were trying to be Jewish, but because they were in line with traditions from the early church. Over the next several decades, the tense relationship between the Jesuit missionaries and the Ethiopian Christians continued up until Claudius's death. Claudius, who spent his whole life defending Ethiopia's independence, was killed doing that very thing. While Ethiopia was no longer in danger to the east, in the 1550s, the Ottoman Empire began attacking from the north. He died in battle, leading his own army to defend his nation. So once again, I will say, these two are a little different from my usual forebears. But I included them because I truly do think they were faithful kings, and they tell us an important part of Ethiopia's history. It also lays the groundwork for understanding Ethiopia's complex relationship with Europe for the centuries to come. Thanks to European support, the Ethiopian Empire survived. But for the next several hundred years, Ethiopia would struggle to stay connected with Europe while also keeping its independent heritage and character. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. So for you listeners who perhaps get bored with the epic battles, don't worry. Next episode will not have any battles at all. At least, not military battles. Our next episode will focus on a woman who will fight in her own way to keep Ethiopia's traditions and heritage alive. And we will go much more in-depth into the tumultuous relationship of Roman Catholicism and Ethiopian Orthodoxy. So that's all for today. Please don't forget to subscribe and write a review. Your ratings and reviews help the show to get us seen a little bit more. And thank you so much for those of you who have. We're also getting some new international listeners, which is wonderful. It's good to have you with us. And don't forget, all of you, tell a friend. To finish off, I'd like to remind you of two other podcasts that are friends of this podcast. First off is Revived Thoughts, which I've been a guest on that show. They bring old sermons back to life, and I did one two years ago of Jean Gerson, way back from episode 16. Hopefully, I will be doing another one again soon. The second show is A Moment of Bach, put on by my friends Alex and Christian Giebert. Each episode, they dive into what makes the music of Bach so beautiful, and how Bach's faith influenced every detail of his work. I'll be a guest on that show coming up soon, so I'll keep you updated on that also. And they will be joining my show for a future season. And yes, there will be a whole episode on Bach someday. Until next time, I'm Eric Clausen, and thanks for listening. <laughs>